Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today I'm joined by Chef Jonas Lorenzen, expert on food during the Viking Age and acclaimed chef who owns a company called Mater, which seeks to incorporate elements of Norse mythology and history into the dishes they create, providing an entirely new Nordic food experience. He is also a well-known musician and is in live ensemble with the music group Heilung, which I know many of you have reached out to me and said you have to talk about Heilung on your show because I'm a big fan of Heilung and I know many of you listening are. So uh, it's just I'm super excited to get into our discussion today. We're going to be talking about food during the Viking Age, as well as just a series of other topics. Well, Jonas, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Noah. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get into all this stuff. It's my pleasure. So I guess I kind of gave you an extremely brief introduction, but could you kind of tell us a little bit about your food company, Mater, and sort of what you do over there? Uh, definitely. I mean, uh, we're based in we're based in London. It's my wife and I started the company in 2017 while we were doing a master's here. Um, we're both doing a, a creative master's from a, a university called Central St. Martin's. And we started the company as sort of uh, to begin with, just to sort of make some extra money um, next to our um, uh, studies and so on. But also just because I've been a professional chef for many years, and we've sort of wanted to get into this. Um, basically, what we do is that we uh, have been doing a lot of pop-up events, so like one-off pop-up events, and we do that through um, different companies that sell the tickets, and then people can sell the ticket, and you'll have a, a one-off experience. And uh, we started off sort of just to. Um, the phenomenon called New Nordic Cuisine, uh, which was started by uh, a bunch of chefs in the, in the Nordics in the back in the beginning of 2000. And um, having been, you know, uh, a long time sort of Viking Age and sort of Iron Age Scandinavian uh, enthusiast, it just sort of slowly developed to sort of that we sort of started incorporating uh, more of these basic, uh, these narratives into our food inspired by the Viking Age and so on. So it sort of developed naturally from there and, and sort of picked up and we got more and more great reviews. And uh, yeah, um, basically that, that's sort of how it started, um, you could say. Uh, and now we're uh, looking into starting our first restaurant. This is our sort of big project right now where we can really curate a, a full-on um, sort of modern-day Viking chieftain hall cuisine experience, briefly. That's how I would say it. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, congratulations. That's quite an exciting project. And I look forward to keeping up with you and hearing how it all goes. I'm sure it'll go absolutely brilliantly. But you know, getting into just the history of food during the Viking Age, this is something that I uh, really don't know much about and something that I've always been very interested in. So what was food like for the Vikings during the Viking Age? I guess, I mean, I'm sure it varied, you know, depending on what region, Iceland, what part of Scandinavia you lived in. But what was sort of the the basic cuisine of the the Viking Age uh, Norsemen? Well, um, as as you well know, with with all these things um, relating to um, how, uh, for instance, uh, everyday life was in uh, in the Viking Age, it's 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 hard to tell because we don't have very many written sources. Like when you get into the medieval periods, you have many more written sources, um, um, whole cookbooks actually that were written in the medieval medieval times as as, as early as twelve hundreds. But in the Viking Age, they didn't really write down their recipes. So 
from what I understand from from the archaeologists who 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 look into this, um, it's basically a lot about looking about what kind of ingredients was available, what kind of tools were available to them at that time, and then of course using your 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 sense and, and sort of looking at yeah, but they would have to ferment a lot of things, they would have to preserve a lot of things. So there was a lot of smoking, a lot of what you call lactic acid fermentation, which is basically just taking any kind of vegetable that you had that you wanted to preserve and then adding salt and then letting the natural bacteria that's in the vegetable or on top of the vegetable actually uh, create a fermentation process which would make it last for a longer time. Um, so basically, uh, yeah, the, they would eat a lot of fermented goods uh, in general um, and dried and cured fish and meat and so on. This idea that, you know, I think many people have that, you know, of Vikings sort of with big, you know, big bones of lots of meat and just sort of eating that every day. That's probably not very likely that they did that. I mean, first of all, uh, you have to think about the fact that livestock and all the different animals they had uh, provided uh, with a particular product that they needed. So cows provided milk chicken provided egg and so on and so forth. So just slaughtering them all the time was probably not a, a very good idea because you would run out of run out of uh, uh, food producing uh, animals. So um so basically they would probably eat a lot of vegetables uh that they would be growing, um a lot of grain um and yeah, these uh these fermented things. Uh that probably would be uh, uh their their stable. And then of course they would uh, whenever they could get meat, they would they would have meat because it was a great sense a source of um, uh, protein and so on that they needed. But uh, yeah, a lot a lot more vegetables um, I think than than people maybe normally you know, think about. Wow, interesting. Now Scandinavia is known for its very cold and very long winters. So during the Viking Age, did you see a lot of? Um, you talked about preserving food. Did you see a lot of? Vikings, you know, savoring their food and rationing it out for the winter when they wouldn't be able to grow crops? Uh, definitely. Um, um, interestingly enough, um, what I understand is that the early spring, the very, very early spring, so like um, sort of like maybe you could say about from, from April um, until, until maybe uh, end of May or something, was actually the time where the Vikings had the least amount of food. Because at that time, you would slowly begin to get buds and little, you know, stuff growing um, on your field and in the forest and stuff like that. But, but uh, all your rations, all the stuff that you had fermented, all the stuff you had preserved through the winter, those rations would start to dwindle and be very, very scarce at that time. So funnily enough, the time that the food was the most abundant would be around Yule time, around Christmas time, actually. Uh, which would also be the time where you would have the, the big feast, the big um, um, uh, winter equinox uh, feast. And uh, yeah, so and, and that would also be the time where you would you would slaughter a few of the animals that you didn't think would last through winter because you'd also have to feed the animals, of course. So you'd have these grand feasts around this time. And that would actually be the time where you had you would have uh, most food, probably. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, so that, that's an interesting thing. Cause I think people sort of normally think about winter as being the time where nobody had any food, but because of their amazing ability to ferment and smoke and dry and all these kind of things, they would actually have quite a lot of food during the winter periods. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. So they would actually eat quite well during the winter periods. Now as a chef, 
I know in your company, you uh, really draw uh, a lot of inspiration from the myths and the, the stories and the you know Icelandic sagas and just the events of Norse history in your creation of delicious food. But could you give us a couple examples or maybe some of the, your favorite things that you've done uh, with your company Mater and how you've incorporated uh, some Norse history or mythology into your dishes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the most recent one, uh, I myself is I'm quite uh, sort of proud of that one. This uh, was a, a dish we made in uh, me and the, uh, a partner that I have in the company. Um, we made a dish which was a representation of the Norse cosmogony, uh, basically the, the, the creation myth. We made this dish in relation to presenting it to uh, some chefs at a one-star Michelin restaurant in London, where we are trying to uh, do some um, do some events, basically there. And uh, this one was basically uh, so. Basically, it, it, you have you have in the Norse creation myth, you have the idea of the three elements. So you have ice, you have fire, and then you have Ginunga gap in the middle, which is a neutral sort of uh, a neutral space where this ice and fire can mix in. And uh, and then uh, and then the ice and fire, the combination of these two things creates something. Um, in the case of Norse mythology, it creates a, a giant and a few other things like a cow and so on. So we made a dish which was basically um, the combination of, of ice and fire. So we made it an, an ice cream. Uh, I should say that the ice cream was savory because we used very, very little um, sugar in the company. And that's because sugar wasn't really available in the Viking or Iron Age, um, it was not something, yes, sweet flavors was not something that uh, was used very much. And this is something I'm really inspired by because I think, I think sugar has become an epidemic in our modern Absolutely. world. So I think if, if I can sort of try to show all the kinds of ways you can do things without actually using sugar and still create a really tasty experience, um, I would like to do that. So the, I, the, the, the sweetness in the ice cream comes from uh, baking uh, a root vegetable uh, called a chervil root which has a bit of a nutty flavor, kind of like a nutty carrot, really. So I made this this ice cream out of that uh, and with some uh, malted honey to give a little extra sweetness and then a hot uh, uh, thing, which was a pork belly, which had been cooked for a long time and then fried to order. And then uh, it was served with um, a lambic beer glaze. And again, lambic beer is probably the closest we have to what kind of beer they would be drinking in the Viking Age because it's a sour beer. And the way you would brew beer in the Viking Age was in these open, big open, uh, big open containers, which creates a wild fermentation, which always makes the beer sour. Um, so I made a sour glaze with that. And then in the middle, I made a neutralizer, which was a um, combination of meadow sweet vinegar. And meadow sweet uh, is uh, also what you use to um, flavor mead. So it, again, you know, you have that Viking thing going on there and then birch sap which is the sap from the tree of the birch um which is which has a little bit of sweetness in it as well and, uh, and and then a quince liquor so basically you would sit and you would eat this combination of ice and fire and you get this great sort of explosion of of, uh, of flavors in your mouth and then you would put, take the neutralizer and the whole thing would be neutralized and your mouth would be ready for the new experience again so kind of like the cyclical creation myth being represented in a dish if you will. Wow. That's fascinating. And that's so cool that you can incorporate all of those elements. I mean, next time I'm in London, uh, I'm going to have to try your food because that sounds absolutely delightful. You're most welcome. Noah. Thank absolutely. you. Now, you are certainly a man of many talents and you are a chef as well as you are a 
musician. And I know that you have toured and still do with the um, music group Hyalung, which uh, they create really cool music inspired by, you know, again, Norse mythology and history and all of that. Um, so can you kind of tell us about your experience playing with them and sort of what you guys do as a as a band and as a musical group? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I got um, I got involved with uh, with Heiling, um because I was contacted by uh, Christopher, who is the you could say you could, you could say sort of uh, uh, he's the chieftain of, of the group in some sense. Um, so Christopher and I have been friends for for many many years, and we've done some other projects as well. We've traveled around India recording um, uh, sort of traditional uh, Indian instruments, which are sort of going out of style more and more in India. So we made a whole project with that as well. So we, we've known each other for a long time. And uh, from what I understand, and Christopher Heilung was in the beginning, not something they were, they were not really thinking about uh, playing live with, with this material, as it has a very interesting beginning, which, uh, which we don't have to get into right now. But uh, that was that was basically it. And uh, at some point, it kind of just blew up on YouTube. And, and, and people started uh, you know, a lot of people started giving it a lot of attention. So he needed to um, find a, a bunch of people who could help uh, Heilung basically create this live experience. So he contacted me because we've done stuff before together, as I said. And um, yeah, uh, I was uh, I was I was there from the very very first um, concert, which is the one you can find on YouTube, uh, the one called Lifa, which basically just means live. Um, yeah, so I got involved with them, and it's been a crazy ride because um, I was never um, before that. I never played um, folk music as such, or uh, was never in that scene. So uh, for me, it was just amazing to sort of come around to these different folk uh, festivals and 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 experience the the inc- incredible uh, vibe there is around around these things and and sort of people. How much people really love this um, is, is 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 really amazing, and I myself have obviously uh, since then uh, been been more and more fascinated with this. Also, learning having to learn how to throat sing, which is interesting, um, which was something I, you know, I thought, well, isn't that a Tibetan thing? But it, it turns out that um, there's been a, a, a long-lived uh, throat singing uh, traditions, both in uh, in Sami cultures and. Uh, Sort of very northern, northern Scandinavian cultures and the Eskimo cultures, and uh, all along the Indo-European trail, which stretches back into um, into uh, Southeast Asia. So uh, learning how to throat sing was really, really challenging because you know normally I would I would always sort of sing in the normal Western modern way, if you will, and throat sing really makes you go really sort of growling almost with, without really. Without really um, um, growling, but yeah, it's it's difficult to explain. But uh, uh, I had to learn that from scratch, basically, and uh, that was a that was a fantastic challenge. And um, another thing which was a fantastic challenge for me was I remember the first rehearsal we had. You know, being a a sort of classically sort of trained modern singer. Uh, it's a lot about controlling your voice. It's a lot about sort of really controlling your voice, so you pitch right and you do all those kind of things. And uh, I all, all of a sudden had to stand and sort of scream. And in the beginning, that was really hard for me to do, to let go, if you will, and just let this sort of 
shamanistic vibe sort of overtake me and uh and and um, kai who is the who is the sort of main shaman man shaman on, on the stage you've got big antlers on and so on he sort of just just told me man just you, you gotta just you gotta just let go you gotta find your inner beast you gotta find your inner wolf and just just scream just just howl and and that was incredibly liberating for me to 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 to, to do that um and uh, yeah, it's just it's just a fantastic group, and 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 everybody is uh, everybody's so supportive of each other, and it really is a, a, a little mini tribe. Whenever we we meet and meet up for a, yeah, wow, that's so cool. Gig. What is your favorite um, your favorite high lung song? Your favorite high lung piece of music to perform live, and and why? Wow. Uh, that's, that's an ever changing subject. I mean, another thing I should mention is another thing about Highland, which was incredible for me was having to learn all these ancient languages because Highland, as you know, sings almost exclusively in, uh, in ancient languages. So everything from ancient Anglo-Saxon to Proto-Norse to, uh, old Germanic styles and so on. And, uh, I think to begin with, the one that I really enjoyed was the one called Al-Fadir Haitir. Um, which is basically, I, I can't remember if it's all the names of Odin, but it's certainly a big chunk of them. So it's like more than 30, I believe more than 30 names of Odin that we chant. And it's sort of repetitive and it just keeps going on and on. It's quite, it's quite powerful. Um, it's quite sort of danceable as well. And, and people really sort of trance out whenever we play that track. And that was always a, a great, great experience. But otherwise, I think it must be the one called Hamar Hippia. Which is kind of a kind of a funny uh, kind of a funny uh, a title because in Danish it means that you're hammering hippies, but that's obviously uh, that's obviously not what it means. But um, anyway, that that <laughs> uh, but uh, that's just a funny little by note. But uh, anyways, uh, I really really enjoy that track uh, because it it has a lot of sort of trance elements, and I used to be a very big fan of uh, psychedelic trance and so on. So playing that live is, is is amazing and it's just it's it's a healing spell it's called the messenburger uh sauberspracher in german which means the messenburger i think it was found around a place called messenburg um spell basically sauberspracher means magical speech and it's um it's basically a story about odin uh, uh helping balder how to heal his horse so it goes something like from the bone to bone, blood to blood, limb to limb, and so on. And, and once you have done these different things, everything will be complete again. And the interesting thing about this one is that this particular spell is found all over the Indo-European trails. Wow. Trail. So you, you can find versions of this spell in India, yeah. for instance, which I think is super fascinating. So that one, uh, that one is hyper-connective, and that's also kind of the end of the show where everyone just kind of yeah, everyone just blows up and and, and that's and awesome. goes absolutely crazy. So, yeah, that's that's really really cool. I mean, uh, High Lung is just a, a great band, and you know, there's sort of uh, there's a fair number of music groups who do that sort of music. You know, whether it be Wardruna or High Lung or you know Dan Haim or whatever, and they all are pretty cool. But I have to say, out of all of them, High Lung is my personal favorite because I just, I mean, it's a great live band and you don't really put on a show in that it's just such an organic experience. You know what I mean? It's so true to the mythology. Now, 
when did you at what point in your life did you first discover sort of norse mythology and then the sagas and the gods and how have those uh i like to say that these you know and i've talked about it on the show numerous times that the stories of norse mythology are are so timeless but is there when did you sort of discover all of that and is there a certain myth or character in norse mythology that really speaks to you oh that's a good question i think in the beginning yeah. it was obviously thor uh that's obviously when you're you're a young child and you hear about thor and his big hammer and thunder and, you know Raffer and all that kind of stuff um uh, uh and when i grew up i don't know have you ever watched the cartoon valhalla you know i haven't but i know what you're talking about <laughs> well it just yeah well maybe 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 it won't have the same effect on you as it had on me because i was obviously a child uh, and you're a, you're a grown man now but um uh, but anyway you can watch it it's it's a good little cartoon definitely so you know that was very early i think i can't have been more than six years old or five years old the first time i saw that one um and so i think it's just ever since then but i think the first time i really uh, i'll get back to your, your question about uh, my favorite god but the first time i really sort of where, where the, the viking thing and the whole sort of uh air about the, the viking age really struck me was was in school where we had to read mm. um we had to read about the yums vikings and that was just like their story is just absolutely crazy palnar tok the the leader of the the Yom's Vikings historian, how their ratings and their different, you know, political intrigues and, and how they all get their heads chopped off at the end. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just amazing, fascinating story. Um, so I think that's the first time I really sort of realized what kind of crazy time this was and, and how, how, how amazing um, the whole history of Scandinavia actually is. Um, I guess also that's why I do all these kind of things that I do because I feel that uh, I feel that you know there's so much amazing things we can learn from from the Viking Age and also pre-Viking Age from Scandinavia, um, which we really need today because we need I think we need to introduce some magic back into uh, back into the modern modern world. Um, I think uh, things can can really quickly be stale. When we think sort of about everything in analytical terms and categorizations and mechanisms and so on, and, and there, I think there's much more to the human experience than all this kind of stuff. I think there, 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 this this magical feeling, this feeling that there's something beyond, and I guess also that was why they traveled as much as they did. You know, there's even hints at perhaps maybe. I mean, I know that Neil S. Price at, le at least uh, he's. Have, do you know Neil S. Price? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you should have him on the show, by the way. I think he's amazing. I should. Uh, well, he even hints at the possibility of them having gone all the way to India. You know, imagine imagine if they did that in those tiny boats. I mean, how how, how absolutely crazy they were. Um, and uh, I think we've we've lost a little bit of that sort of pioneering voyager spirit. It's like we think sort of all frontiers have been covered or something like that. Um, so yeah, um, but getting back to your to your question about the the favorite god, I think it's got to be Odin now, yeah. um, just because of his his many faceted uh, sort of character that he has, and the fact that he's got all these names, for instance, is so so fascinating to me. Um, also, because I'm a great student of uh, of Indian mythology, and um, my wife being Indian, uh, I got really sucked into that and. 
the great parallels there are there to, to Odin and, and Shiva, who's my, maybe my favorite uh, Indian god. Um, I, I think it's probably Odin at this, at this time. The destroyer, the, the gift bringer, the, the, the tamer of wolves, the, <laughs> all these different things. I just think it's, it's super fascinating. Yeah, no, I always love asking that people, people that question, you know, that seems super basic. Who is your favorite god? But I always love it when people give very detailed and personal answers because i think that uh it really we can relate to these these characters that are so timeless in these stories you know for me i've often thought who is my favorite god um i do find odin very interesting uh i'm as i continue to you know expand my knowledge in the eddas and the sagas i'm starting to learn more about him but uh i've always been quite drawn to the seafaring god Njord because I mean, I've always loved the concept, or I should say been fascinated right. by the concept of fertility and new life in various mythologies, but as well as, you know, merchants and, and uh, wealth being created, I've always thought that's that's very interesting too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, um, Njord is really cool. And he, he was, wasn't he actually a... Um, Vanyar, wasn't he? He yeah, was that's a, right. He was not an, uh, a seer. He was, uh, yeah. he was a Vanyar, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now he's he's a fascinating character as well. Um, but I think it just for me, I think uh, for the reason why I would choose Odin today uh, is not to be boring, because I guess a lot of people would would choose Odin. But I think it's it, it's probably because he he in some ways best represents a total uh, sort of uh, image of the human experience in some sense. The fact that he has all these aspects to him. The fact that he's always hungry for knowledge, the fact that, you know, even uh, even when he knows something about the future, he still sort of launches head forward into uh, gaining more knowledge and, 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 uh, and doing more things. Um, I, uh, and another thing I've actually, and this is something that sort of struck me um, some time ago. Uh, why, why does Odin only have one eye? I mean, I know the story about why he only has one eye. But I just find that whole story so fascinating. The fact that he, that he gave his one eye in order to gain the knowledge of Mimir's well, uh, so that now he only sees with one eye, but he, he, he sacrificed the other eye to gain the knowledge. And, you know, in Indian mythology and, and so on, you have the, the idea of uh, the third eye, which is a single eye that you need to see with in order to see into the real fabric of reality in some sense. So in some sense, he gave up his two eyes in order to see with the one eye and then to see clearly with only one eye instead of two eyes. And I just find, find that super fascinating as well. I'm not saying that that is the reason, because this is wild speculation. Uh, just a little disclaimer there, but uh, I, I still sort of, <laughs> I can't help but think of all these different no, things. No, that's extremely that's fascinating. Do, but, yeah. And uh, <laughs> as well as him sacrificing himself to himself, which by the way, and I've actually spoken to scholars about this in person, uh, that, that myth of Odin sacrificing himself to himself for hanging on the world tree Yggdrasil for nine days and nine nights, uh, that actually, most people look at that myth and they think, oh, well, that just must be you know, a parallel to Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross for the sins of the world. No, actually, that myth, it's basically said by most that that has originated before even the birth of Christ. So yeah it's it's so fascinating right i think i think uh i think that's true uh i don't buy the the whole christianity thing 
uh, it could be that that this story was given special re- relevance by Snorri Sturluson because it because it it um, because it kind of maybe in his mind uh, represented the, the Christian myth in some way. We can never know about that, but but to me. Uh, it it reminds me much more of the story of the Buddha, for instance. Uh, the, when the Buddha, at the very end, before he gains enlightenment, he is basically so tired and so weak and hasn't eaten for a long time, and is sort of hanging in his arm by one branch in a river. And uh, at some point, after hanging in that river, he all of a sudden sort of sort of gives up everything, and then then sort of knows what he has to do in order to, to gain enlightenment. And he goes and sits under a tree and, uh, and there by um, um, sitting there and meditating gains uh, enlightenment. So this whole idea of, of, of being the same with, with Odin in this case, not having eaten for a long time, being completely exhausted, uh, hanging from that tree. Yeah. And at the very end of exhaustion, that's where the runes come up and that's where he gains the knowledge. I think uh, I think the inspiration for uh, both those stories yeah. probably come from no, the same. No, I absolutely agree. That's probably something that's incredibly, that. incredibly fascinating. Well, Jonas, it's been just an absolute delight to have you on the show. You're certainly a wealth of knowledge, and uh, I always love talking to people like you who really live sort of, you know, live the Viking Age. Uh, some might even say the Second Viking Age <laughs> in their daily lives. So. I'll certainly put links to your website for Mater in the description below and um, just basically everything where people can find you. And for those of you listening, I do encourage you to check out Jonas's stuff. Um, But Jonas, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Noah. Thank you. 